Well, good evening. Take your Bible and open to the New Testament, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. And we are, excuse me, in verse 4. Let me read 4, 5, and 6. Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Tonight we're returning to this portion of scripture that I really think is remarkable. It's a portion of scripture that is um, absolutely rich in significance. Uh, It's a portion of scripture, as I've said before, that clearly defines for us what it means to be a Christian. And I'm convinced that a major reason why the Church of Jesus Christ makes so little impact in the culture in which it finds itself is that it fails in large to understand what exactly does it mean to be a Christian. Because for far too long, I think much of the church, especially here in America, has suffered under the preaching that is superficial and a study of the Bible that is superficial. And I think many of the problems that we find ourselves with in the body of Christ can be traced to a superficial approach to Christianity and a superficial approach to Christian doctrine. There's a fundamental lack, I think, of understanding of the profundity and the depth of meaning that comes with that title, Christian. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What are the implications? And I think those are the things we have to understand and we got to contemplate, we have to think on. And if we fail to take the time to understand that, that truth or those truths or fail to understand the implications, I think we do ourselves a tremendous disservice. And we miss the greatness, the the depth, the largeness, and the glory of really what it means to be a Christian. And when we fail to understand biblically what it means to be a Christian, we tend to grumble and complain about our life and about what's happening in this life. We tend to buy into the uh, lusts of the world in order to find meaning and satisfaction in life. We tend to see the events that are going on in our life uh, uh, from a worldly perspective. If we fail to understand what it means to be a Christian, then we lead superficial lives and we're only involved uh, superficially uh, in the role and the function of the church in the world. We become superficially involved with the proclamation of the of the truth, superficially involved with evangelism. So it, it really means a lot to understand biblically what it means to be a Christian, a Christian, right? A follower of Christ. And, and when we uh, understand that, uh, it brings blessings. When we fail to understand, <clears throat> again, it just leads to all kinds of problems and on a personal level and problems in the church. I think not understanding the depth of what it means to be a Christian really leads the world to embrace worldly methodologies and worldly means to do this thing that we call church. And uh, we turn, again, to worldly ways, worldly philosophies, and uh, again, it just results in a tremendous amount of uh, superficiality, superficial Christian lives. And, and really, it is a shame on us. Uh, if we don't understand what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be to carry the name Christian 
Uh, and again, living superficial lives is not what God has intended for us uh, in this portion of Scripture. So again, I think it's a great portion of Scripture. I think it calls us to greatness, not greatness in the sense of calling attention to ourselves, but greatness in understanding our union with the person of Jesus Christ. And again, the tremendous implications that that has in our life, both now and then in eternity. Back in chapter 6, verse 14, Paul has made a profound statement. In uh, 6.14, it says, For sin shall not be master over you, but you're not under law, but under grace. And I think, really, Paul is, in part, um, defending that statement. Because the Jews had such a high view of the law of God. So what exactly does that mean? He answered the first part of that statement, 6.14, For sin shall not be master over you, in that great statement found in chapter 6.15 through 23. That portion of scripture that said that we were slaves of sin, but we've been freed from slavery to sin and now enslaved to God, etc. and so forth. And now he really is explaining the second part of the statement here in Romans 7. You are not under law, but under grace. So standing in grace is the position of every true believer because of the person of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that we're no longer under the power of the law. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law. We've been removed from that realm of condemnation into another realm, into another kingdom. And again, it's the kingdom of grace. And that's a tremendously freeing truth that continues to point us to the person of Jesus Christ. That points to the person of Christ, that declares the for the person uh, who follows Christ that Christ is everything. Right? Uh, again, every believer is now under grace, no longer under the law because of Jesus Christ. Now, if I were to back up just for a moment and kind of uh, back away from being so down deep here in this text and, and back up just a little bit, try to get somewhat of a bird's eye view, as it were. Uh, remember, the major theme of the book of Romans is justification by faith. The first three chapters, Paul lays out the condemnation of all mankind, that we're all under sin. And then he starts to really lay out the major or the first major look at justification by faith is found in chapter 3, verse 20 and following, where he talks about the person of Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. He continues to play that doctrine out in its implications in the rest of chapter 3 and then chapter 4. If you go in chapter 5, uh, what you see is the fruit of that doctrine. And, and the first fruit, if you will, of the doctrine of justification by faith is security. It's peace with God. Starts That's the way the top of chapter 5 starts. The second fruit of justification by faith comes in chapter 6, and that's holiness. Because of our union with Christ, we have peace with God. Chapter 5, because of our union with Christ, we have holiness. Right. So does the doctrine of justification by faith alone lead to liberty in sin? What some of G, uh, Paul's opponents are claiming, the answer, has, uh, uh, as we've seen over and over, is of course not. Right? Absolutely not. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase, may it never be? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He's trying to give us an understanding of justification, what that means. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, does not mean that you can sin all of you want, and then God's grace will cover that, as again the opponents to that teaching were putting forth. Justification by grace alone through faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ actually makes you holy. It makes you holy. Because again, of our union with Christ, and that's a tremendously important concept. Our union with Christ leading to a transformation of life. And, and if justification in your life doesn't lead to a transformation of life, uh, there's a problem. right? If it, do, it doesn't lead to a life of license 
That's antinomianism, right? Do whatever you want. There's no law, right? You can do whatever you want. No, it actually has the opposite effect. It leads to a life of holiness. And again, if you claim to be justified, if you claim to be a Christian carrying his name, and you don't demonstrate that change in your life, if that proclamation of your union with Christ doesn't uh, present itself in an outward fashion, there's a problem. There's a problem with your proclamation, not a problem with the gospel, not a problem with Christ, because Christ changes his people from the inside out. He makes them holy, right? The Holy Spirit is in the process of conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So every little day, every day that goes by, there should be a little more, a little more transformation of life. The third fruit, if you will, of justification is chapter 7, that's liberty. That's freedom from the law, and specifically freedom from the condemnation of the law. So Paul, as you know, because we're working our way through it, gives an axiom, then an an, an analogy, then verse 4, which we've worked our way into, which is the application. So again, very quickly, by way of review, the axiom, verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who understand the law or know the law, Again, there's no definite article, so he's not saying the law like mosaic, but he's saying law in general. doesn't matter if it's Greek law, Hebrew law, Roman law, biblical law, Jewish law, any law. He's saying that the law has jurisdiction over a person only as long as they live. Right? The law has jurisdiction over a person when that person is alive. For example, if you happen to be um, uh, somebody who is speeding, and, and you get into an accident and you die... I guarantee you the state troopers are not going to come and give you a ticket for speeding and place it on your body in the coffin, right? Because now the law has no jurisdiction over you once you die. You're done with the law, right? It's over. So to be freed from the law, there has to be a death. Verse 2, the analogy. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So again, it makes simple. Or the, the point, the analogy is simple. The law has jurisdiction over you as long as you're alive. When someone dies, that comes that frees you from the law. And Paul is trying to help people who come to faith in Christ, who come from a Jewish background, to understand what it means for them that they are no longer under the law, because that's the only system they've ever known. Right? So you have to read it in the context of the day. We kind of have a better understanding because we're looking back and we got it, but they're in the mix of it. They've known only one thing, that they do this or don't do this. They do this, they don't do this. That's how they have their standing before God. But Paul is saying, no, you're no longer under that. There's a new relationship for the believer because of Christ, because of their union with the person of Jesus Christ. Again, uh, if the husband's alive, uh, the woman is bound by the law to stay in that marriage relationship. If the husband dies, she's free from that. She's free from that legal liability, that contract, that law, free to marry another. Again, verse 4 really is therefore becomes the application. So you have the axiom, you have the analogy, now the application. Verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. So this is what happens when you come to faith in Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means that you have made, been, you were made to die to the law so that you might be joined to another 
to him who is raised from the dead. Now, we went through this previously, but when that phraseology, you are made to die, it's passive. This is what God does for you. Or this is what God does to you. You don't do this to yourself. This is what God does. It's passive. At the moment of your conversion, remember back in chapter 6, verse 3, uh, uh, Romans uh, 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And again, I just stopped to remind you, that's a dry verse. He's not talking about water. He's talking about identification. He's talking uh, about being immersed into the person of Jesus Christ, identified with Christ. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. When you repented, when you placed your faith in Christ, you were united with Christ. Therefore, in Christ, the old you is dead. The old you has died in Christ, right? A real spiritual death. And because of our union with Christ, because Christ was raised from the dead, Christ died to sin, Christ raised from the dead, our union with him makes us equal in all those same things, right? We were also died to sin. We also were raised from the dead with him. So now the old us is gone, buried, and in Christ we have a new life, right? The old us, the old man is gone. Excuse me, we're we're new creations now found in Christ. That's who we are now. Therefore, I told you this previously, but being a Christian isn't just something you believe. Being a Christian means that you're one who's undergone a profound change. You have an entirely new life. Now, before you came to faith in Christ, the law could not save you. All the law could do was condemn you. All the law could do was condemn you, and the wages of sin is death. But now that you're in Christ, now that you've been saved, now you, the old you, is dead. The new you is now alive in Christ, The law, therefore, that condemning law, no longer has any jurisdiction over you, right? Paul paid, or Christ, because Christ paid that penalty. The wages of sin is death, Christ paid the penalty, right? The wages of sin is death, but what? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, Romans 6, uh, 23. Because you, the old you, is put to death in Christ... The old you is put to death in Christ. That old you is now dead concerning the law. And again, the law now in Christ has no longer any ability to reach into your life to exercise power or dominion over you because now you're no longer under that realm. You're under grace. No longer under the law, but under grace. So again, a Christian, being a Christian means you have an entirely new life. A profound change has happened to you. Secondly, because now you're in Christ and dead to the law and under grace, I told you you've entered into a completely different new relationship to both the law itself and to God himself. A new relationship to the law and a new relationship to God. So again, the, the, the Christian is no longer under the law, but he's under grace. The Christian has been made to die to the law. Therefore, the Christian no longer looks to himself for his right standing before God, but he looks to the person of Jesus Christ alone. 
the one who is the end of the law for righteousness. Jesus Christ, the one who redeemed us from the curse, having become a curse for us. Jesus Christ, the one who became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So the Christian is one who has an entirely new life, an entirely new relationship to the law, and again, an entirely new relationship to the person of God himself, right? We are no longer God's enemies. We are no longer under God's condemnation, no longer under his wrath, but we have peace with God. We are reckoned justified by God because of the blood of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and again, saved from the wrath to come. Therefore, number three, a Christian has an entirely new purpose in life. Again, verse 4, my brethren, therefore, my brethren, you are also made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Here's why. In order that we might bear fruit for God. So that's the definition of a Christian. A Christian is one who bears fruit for God. That's the practical effects of justification by faith alone. The practical effects of moving from the reality of death to life. That person who's moved from death to life in Christ now bears fruit for God. That's the spiritual fruit of righteousness that now lives in and lives through that believer. He, he lives for the purpose of glorifying God and glorifying Christ. And again, the fourth truth I told you that the Christian is aware of the fact that he's no longer who he used to be. Right? The Christian is aware of the fact that he is no longer who he used to be, that there is now a new power and a new ability, a new factor at work in their life. And that's because, again, of the Christian's union with Christ. The Christian, in essence, has been married to Christ, joined to Christ. He now belongs to Christ. The Christian, <clears throat> unlike the unchristian, you now as a Christian, unlike who you were before you came to Christ, you now love the Word. Amen? Right? You love the Word of God, and you long for the Word of God. It's not just something you have on your shelf. It's something you take down from your shelf, shelf and you read it because you want to know the Word of God. You long for the Word of God because you want to know God. You want to know Christ in a better fashion, and you want to grow by grace, and you grow by the, by the Word of God. The Christian is now one who loves the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the cross is no longer foolishness to him. That the cross is now the power of God unto salvation. It's the wisdom of God. So the Christian, unlike the unchristian, now knows a new power, a new uh, uh, factor, a new ability at work in his life. He loves the word. He loves the cross. And now he loves God. Before you come to faith in Christ, you don't love God. Now you come to faith in Christ, you love God. And you're aware of the fact now that God loves you. Again, the, the, the Christian has a new life within them. And the Christian now has a new purpose in their life, and that's to glorify God. They want to glorify God, glorify Christ. They want to do God's will. In fact, the psalmist says they delight in doing God's will. Now again, the natural man, the unregenerate man, does not even think in categories like this. He never thinks about these kind of categories. And as I told you last time, these are all signs of life. Right? You take your spiritual pulse, you see if any of these things are true in you, and again, there's a vast difference between a person who has a weak pulse and a person who has no pulse. Okay, Your pulse may be weak, depending on where you're at in your walk with Christ, but a pulse is different from no pulse. Do you love the Word? Do you love the Lord? Do you love the cross? Right? Do, do, you, are, do you love God? Are you aware of the fact that God now loves you? Do you have a different purpose in your life? Are you aware of the fact that there's a new power uh, within you that is causing you to do these things? And, and, and I think one of the ones I used last week, are you amazed at yourself? <clears throat> right? Not that you're so smart, but that God is so gracious to you that now your life is completely transformed what it was before. That, that's, a, that's a believer. 
Now, how does it all happen? Verse 4 again, it says, through the body of Christ. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who is raised from the dead, through the body of Christ. Now, in the context here, Paul is not talking about the body of Christ as the church, which he does often in other places in his writings. But here he's talking about the literal, physical body of Jesus Christ. He's talking about Jesus Christ in his incarnation, God coming in the flesh. He's talking about Jesus Christ in a sinless life. Jesus Christ in a substitutionary death upon the cross. Now we know the Bible says the wages of sin is death, and somebody has to pay that penalty. Right? Romans 3 and 23, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Uh, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18, 4, the soul that sins will die. Uh, Genesis 2, God told Adam, uh, in the day that you eat from the forbidden tree, the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. Romans 5, 12, therefore justice through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sin. Right? The wages of sin is death. Death has come to the world. Everybody dies. Everybody's infected by this thing called sin. And because all have sinned, uh, um, all are guilty, but the law demands a payment. Again, somebody has to pay that penalty. Somebody has to pay the punishment for sin. Somebody has to die. Somebody has to die. Somebody has to bear the curse. Again, all of sin, all are under condemnation, all are deserving death, but God, because he's rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved the world, he sent his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to Calvary's cross to die. He was born to die. Again, Second Corinthians five twenty one, God made him who knew no sin, that be Jesus Christ, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right? Why why would God do this? Again, he does this out of his tremendous love. Put a mark right there in your Bible and turn over to the book of Galatians. <clears throat> I thought this was encouraging. <clears throat> Excuse me, Galatians uh, chapter four. Galatians four four. Galatians 4 4 says, In the fullness of time, or but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So again, Christ came into the world to redeem us from the law's penalty. To redeem us means to buy us back, to free us from the condemnation of the penalty of the law. And Jesus Christ comes into the world, he places himself under the law. Born of a woman, born under the law. Now, he didn't have to do that, but he did. He did so voluntarily. He places himself voluntarily under the penalty and the condemnation, the punishment of the law. He obligates himself to perfectly obey God's law. And that's exactly what he did. Right? He, he dies a substitutionary death, but he lived a sinless life. He's the second Adam. And the second Adam, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his lifelong obedience, did what the first Adam failed to do. The first Adam failed in his disobedience. Jesus Christ obeyed God's law perfectly for us. He lived a life. He lived 30 years, and he met all the demands of the law on our behalf. Not only dying for us, but living for us in order to secure our salvation. So again, in order to secure our salvation, Christ not only died a substitutionary death, 
He lives a sinless, perfect life. He obeys the law of God in our place. He who knew no sin, right? He who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, as it says in Hebrews 7.26. First Peter 2.22, Jesus who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. First uh, John 3 and 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. To secure our salvation, Christ comes and he dies as a substitute. He, he dies bearing our penalty as our substitute. At the right time, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And again, Jesus Christ perfectly keeps the law, perfectly obeys the law. He therefore becomes the perfect substitute, the God-man, mankind's substitute, mankind's representative, our sin-bearer to receive the penalty of our sin that it so richly deserves. And again, Christ renders perfect obedience to the law, but he bears our sin because our sin condemns us. So again, by imputation, Christ takes or God takes our sin, places it upon Christ. First uh, Peter two and twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's that newness of life concept, right? We have a new life in Christ. Christ bears our sins. God places all of our sins upon Christ. Romans three and twenty three. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Right? Why did Christ die? Answer is He had to. He had to die to satisfy the demands of the law. The wages of sin is death. Somebody's got to pay that penalty to fulfill the legal requirements of the law so that God could be or that God could demonstrate his righteousness so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the question. Why couldn't the sinner just say, I'm sorry, I have sinned. And God just say, it's okay, I forgive you. Why, why, why can't that happen? Why can't the sinner say, I'm sorry I've sinned, and God say, okay, that's okay, I forgive you, and let bygones be bygones? The answer is because it violates God's law. It violates God's justice. Again, the penalty of sin is death. Somebody has to pay that penalty. The law cannot be violated. Plus, to be justified or to be saved means that we are talking about a righteousness that we don't possess a righteousness that we need that has to be given to us from someone who is worthy to give it to us, the righteous one. Right? So, so the law has to be upheld so that God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes, he fulfills the law, he bears in his body on the cross our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So when Paul says that phraseology, therefore my brethren, you are also made to die to the law through the body of Christ. That's in part what he's talking about. Christ, our perfect substitute. Christ, our high priest, who offers himself as our sacrifice upon the cross to fulfill the demands of the law, delivering us from the curse and condemnation of the law, allowing us to be received by God, adopted as his sons, and receive the imputed righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ. However, there's something more. 
You might remember also, I think last week or a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember, I said he's answering this one uh, uh, question or this uh, 6.14, but he's also answering in Romans 7 another statement that Paul made back in chapter 5, verse 10. Verse 6 of chapter 5 says, While we are still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while that we are yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having been justified by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath of god through him okay we got that one all right verse 10 romans 5 10 if while we were enemies we were reconciled to god through the death of his son much more than having been reconciled we shall be here it is we shall be saved by his life and we talk about his death all the time we got that part but we shall be saved by his life he's answering that question how how in the world does that happen now i'm going to turn a little theological on you if I've not already turned theological on you but I'm going to give you a little bit of a quote out of um, uh, Dick Mayhew's Biblical Doctrine and then I'm going to give you another quote from from John Murray uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied which are helpful for us to think through because I don't think we always think on this level but we need to much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life Uh, Mayhew when we talk about the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us We need to understand that forgiveness of sin does not exhaust God's work in justification. In fact, if the only benefit believers received in justification were forgiveness of sins or our sin, we cannot be saved. I'll read it again just in case you thought I misread it. In fact, if the only benefit believers received in justification were forgiveness of our sins, we cannot be saved. The law of God, which man broke, thereby incurring the death penalty, Romans 6.23, carries both positive demands and penal sanctions. That is to say, God's law requires both, one, that his creatures perform certain duties suitable to his righteousness, and two, they undergo a certain punishment if they fail to perform those duties. Mayhe says man has failed to do both. We do not live lives of perfect righteousness, walking in obedience to God in all things, loving him uh, with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Neither do we pay the penalty that our disobedience demands without perishing in hell. Therefore, if we are to be saved, our substitute must not only pay our penalty by absorbing the wrath of God against our sin, but must also obey the positive demands of the law that were required of us. This twofold nature of Christ's substitutionary work it's sometimes referred to the passive obedience and the active obedience of Christ. That's good. It's not just Christ paying our penalty, but that we are saved. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Positive demands that we must live, that we don't live. A penalty that we can't pay that he paid. Uh, John Murray, again in uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, said, says, The law of God has both penal sanctions and positive demands. It demands not only the full discharge of its precepts, but also the inflection of a penalty for all infractions and shortcomings. It is this twofold demand of the law which is taken into account when we speak of the active and passive obedience of Christ. Christ as the vicar, having his people uh, come under the curse and condemnation due to sin, yet he also fulfills the law of God and all of its positive requirements. In other words, he took care of the guilt of sin and perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. He perfectly met both the penal and perceptive requirements of God's law. The passive obedience refers to the former and the active obedience to the latter. I thought that was really good. That's very helpful to get both sides 
of what the law demands, right? The active and passive obedience of Christ. We're saved not just by his death, we're saved by his life. We're therefore justified, counted as righteous, counted righteous in addition to being forgiven, and then clothed with the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us by Christ's perfect life, not only paying the penalty for our sin, but living in our stead as our substitute, living a perfect life. That makes sense? Hope so, because that's all you're getting. All right? It's tremendous truth. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So in Christ, what's our relationship to the law? Well, Galatians 2 and 19 says, Through the law, I die to the law, that I might live to God. How does that happen? How do we die to the law and now live to die to the law, but now live to God? Uh, Galatians 2 and 2 and uh, 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the, are you getting a theme? Right? Are you picking up on the theme? He's not talking about his own performance. He's not talking about doing this or not doing that. He's talking about Christ. He 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 gets the union of Christ part. Christ is everything. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He gets it. He who used to live by the law, who he used to live under the condemnation of the law, he has been freed from that system because he now sees the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is everything to him. It all comes through Christ. It all comes through the body of Christ. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Right? So go back there to, to, uh, to, to Romans uh, 7. So again, Christ voluntarily comes into the, the world at the right time, sent by the Father. Because of the Father's great, rich mercy and love. All of our sin is laid upon Christ as our substitute. Christ voluntarily takes our sin. Right? The law demands that he would be delivered up to death upon Calvary's tree. And, and that's what happened. He was slain. He died our death. He died the death that you and I deserve. He dies the death for your sin. Right? He dies the death that we should have died because of our own sin. And then this. He lives the life that we should have lived, but we can't live. We don't live. He lives the life. He dies the death. That's the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it means that salvation comes to a man who believes upon the the body of Christ, through the body, really the broken body of Christ. Christ who pours out his life. Christ who gives his life a ransom for many. And again, the resurrection of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's given his life, shows that the law has been satisfied in total. The positive demands plus the penal penalty has been satisfied in Christ. Christ fulfilled it all. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead. Romans 4 and 25 says that Christ was delivered because of our transgressions, but he was raised because of our justification. So God in Christ counts the penalty, both sides of the demands of the law, paid in full. God was propitiated in Christ. His personal anger was turned away from the sinner because God in his kindness sent the sacrifice, and the sacrifice in his love came on his own free will to stand in that place to take our penalty. God's righteous anger appeased, propitiated God's righteous law perfectly met. Christ's sufficient, sufficient death fulfills the, all, the law for all who believe in him. Again, he's the sin bearer. He, he is our substitute. We have peace with God through the body of Christ. Therefore, we stand before God free from sin, dead to sin, 
free from all condemnation, no longer under the law, but under grace, right? That's a tremendously helpful statement. That's a tremendously encouraging truth, right? In order that we might bear fruit for God. Again, that's uh, uh, verse 4. Uh, that all of the benefits we get, we get because of Christ. All, all the benefits we have are because we're joined to Christ, united with him, married to him. And again, what's true of Christ is true of us. My brethren, therefore my brethren, you are made to die of the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead. So again, what is true of him is true of us because of our union with him. He died to the law, therefore we died to the law. Right? The law exacted the full penalty upon Christ, and we as believers in Christ are set free from the penalty of the law's demand, and we will never die ever eternally because of Christ. Right? We will not pay the penalty of sin, which is death, eternally away from the presence of God in a literal physical place of physical, conscious, eternal torment because Jesus Christ paid that penalty for our sin in full through his body. The Christian is dead to the law. Therefore, we are dead to the law. We're free to be married to Christ. No longer under the power and dominion of the law. Now, again, under the care of God, under the care of Christ. And again, no longer condemned. Right? I tell you all the time, Romans 8, verse 1, is one of my top 500 favorite verses, which is all, all 500 of them. Right? There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That ought to get a hallelujah. Right? There's no condemnation for us here in Christ. Right? Uh, for you're not under law, you're under grace. Again, that union of Christ with Christ, that analogy of the marriage relationship, it, it's a real union. You say, well, how in the world is that a real union? It's a real union. Somewhat along the same level as the physical union between the husband and wife, where it says the two shall become one, one flesh. You go, how do you get that? I don't know. It's what the Bible says. It's a marvelous mystery. You tell me how it works. You tell me how perfect God comes down and joins himself to fallen humanity in order to be the Redeemer. Get back to me and we'll talk about that. But it's a real union. It's a real union with God and man. It's a real union with the Savior and his redeemed people so that he might save us from the penalty of sin. And it's an amazing truth. So in that marriage analogy, there's an intimacy that's present, an intimacy that needs to be developed and, and deepened, a real oneness, a complete union, a fidelity in, in that relationship, in an absolute commitment uh, in, in that union to each other, to never allow anything to ever come between them. We know that Christ has promised to never leave us or forsake us, right? So there's this intimate union, this in intimate oneness, uh, the submission by the believer to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come, are now joined to Christ, we're married to him, we submit to his will. Uh, to his desires, to his leadings. We, we submit ourselves to his care, to his direction, uh, because he has proven his great love for us. He's given his life for us. There's nothing absolutely whatsoever wrong with the word submission. To line up under the loving care of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for us, the one who subjected himself to the law for us, the one who bore the penalty of death in his body that we might be united with him forever to be set free again from the condemnation of the law, to enjoy a permanent union with him, knowing that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? It's tremendous truth. That marriage relationship, that analogy, it just goes on and on. I mean, if you were to stop and think about it, you could probably think of some of these things 
uh, very easily on your own. But I said it to you last week, I think, that when we become united with the person of Jesus Christ, when we're joined with him, we take his name, right? We're known as Christians. A Christian isn't just somebody who believes a bunch of doctrinal truth. No, a Christian is one who's taken his name. We're people who belong to him. We're in an intimate reunion with him. And the Bible says that Christ has a name that is incomparable. That Christ has a great name, a highly and exalted name. Philippians 2 and 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of our union with Christ, listen, we bear his name. Just as the bride takes the name of the groom, we bear the name, we bear the name of Christ. How could we ever be ashamed of that name? How could we ever be apologetic for letting people know that we're Christians, who belong to Christ? How could we ever be afraid to, to let anybody know or to find out our name? Joined with him, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, the one who stood as our substitute, the one who lived a perfect life for us. To be joined to him, to be given his name, the name of all names, the greatest name of all in heaven and on earth, under earth. What an amazing truth. People of the world aren't ashamed of their names. People of the world are proud of their titles, their position. We should be also, right? We should make our glory in the name of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should never be ashamed to be called Christians, no matter who might be giving us a hard time at school or who might be giving us a hard time at work, mocking us. You don't actually believe in all that Jesus nonsense. Well, as a matter of fact, I actually do. And it's non, not nonsense. It happens to be the truth. And the only truth that's ever going to set you free from the penalty of your own sin and dying apart from Christ, you're going to face an eternity in a place you don't want to go, I guarantee you. So perhaps you, my friend, who's trying to give me a hard time, ought to stop and think about the reality of what you're facing without the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of his name. Well, it might cost you your job if you don't sit down and shut up cost me my job if my father loves me enough to die for me do i not think that he could perhaps provide me another form of employment there's nothing this world has to offer me that i care about just want to be faithful to his name i just want to honor his name i want to make my boast in his name i want to glory in his name we bear his name and if we really understood that again i'm kind of prefacing this whole thing saying look the superficiality of the Christian world, the superficiality of not really understanding what it means to be a Christian. If we understood what it meant to be a Christian, don't you think that'd have some impact on how we live our lives? Didn't your dad tell you, Here, here's your last name, and you better live up to that last name? I don't want you to do anything that brings disrespect or disrepute on, on our family name. You better get it together. How much more so here the name of Christ? We bear his name. How that should affect how we live. Since the one who died for our trespasses, our sins, the one who's taken us from aliens and rebels, of objects of God's wrath and under God's condemnation, has not only forgiven us, he's lived a perfect life for us, and he's joined us, God the Father has joined us to that person to call us a Christ one. I bet it has an effect on how we live our life. It should. Right? How should we who died to sins to live in it? That's a good question. But how shall we who bear the name of Christ still walk in sin? The answer is we can't. Why would we ever want to dishonor that name? Right? Why would we want to do nothing except honor him and glorify him and, and live holy lives 
that are pleasing to him. My brethren, also you are made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead. I mean, I could go on and on, which I'm going to do, which you already knew that, but I'm not going to go on and on in a great amount of detail. I'm just going to give you some highlights. If we're joined to him, if we're married to him, that again means we share everything in common with him. Not only his name, but we share his great standing. Colossians 2 and 10 says, In Christ we have been made complete. In Christ we lack nothing. 1 Peter 1 and 3 says, We've been joined to Christ. God's divine power, 1 Peter 1 3 says, God's divine power has granted to us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him, through the true knowledge of Christ. God has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Right? We are joined to Christ. We are now share everything in common with him. We share his name. We share his great standing. And God through Christ has given us everything we need and we become partakers of the divine nature. The Bible says because of our union with Christ, because of our relationship with him, we are now presently, positionally, where he is, where Christ is at the present time. Ephesians 2 and 6 says that just as God raised Christ or just as God raised us from the dead and made us alive together with Christ, God has now seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Think on that one. We're down here in the muck and the mire grumbling and complaining because we don't understand the great privileges that we have in Christ that God has seen, God sees us now seated with Christ already at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the exalted position. That's the exalted place you hold. That's the exalted name of the person who bears the name of his son, a Christian. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world and that we will judge angels? Verse 3, 2 Timothy 2 and 11, It's a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. So what are the privileges of our position uh, uh, because of our union with Christ? Well, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We're judges of the world, judges of angels, reigning with him. Titus 3 and 7 says we're heirs of eternal life. James 2 and 5 says we're heirs of the kingdom. 1 Peter 3 and 7 says heirs of the grace of life. And of Christ, God says, Hebrews 1 and 2, that God has appointed him heir of all things. So that's who we are in Christ, united with him. Those are the privileges we have because of our union with Christ. In Christ, we're the heirs of all things. We reign and rule with him, seated in the heavenlies, because God has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's more. We have the great privilege, again, of access to the Father. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom God has also obtained our, or we have also obtained our introduction, our access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope in the glory of God. I know I've spoken about this before, but the great privilege we have to God through Christ is access to the Father. We've been joined together with the Son, united with Him. Now we're part of God the Father's family. And as His child, we can come to Him. And we are confident that He's going to care for us. He's going to provide for us. And listen, listen real carefully. 
We never have to worry about anything ever again in Christ because of our union with him. We don't have to worry about anything again in Christ because of our union with him. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for... I can't hear you. Be anxious for nothing. Do you want to know what nothing means in the Greek? It means nothing. Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Listen, verse 7. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Why do we grumble? Why do we complain? Why do we fear? Because we don't understand who we are in Christ. We don't understand that we're married to the Father's Son. Now let me ask you a question, you who have kids that are married. Would you do anything for your kids? Would you do anything for your kids' spouses? And the answer is, of course you would. Because they're now part of your family. We're to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpass all understanding, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Right? As members of the Father's household, married to his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he's given to the world for this very purpose, he said, Look, you don't have to worry about anything. Be anxious for nothing. It would be interesting to do a study on how many times the Bible says, do not fear, fill in the blank. Do not fear, do not fear, do not be anxious. Well, of course, as good uh, fallen individuals, what do we spend the vast majority of our time doing? Fretting, worrying, fearing, being anxious. We're called to be anxious for nothing. Jesus Christ himself says, John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. So not only do we have access to the Father, we have the promise of the Son, that we don't need to worry about anything because of our union with Him, our union with Christ. My brethren, also you are made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you'd be joined to another, to Him who is raised from the dead. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it takes a little bit of power to be raised from the dead? Have you happened to meet anybody in your life that has that kind of power? I know of no man except one. If he has the power to raise himself from the dead, do you think he has the power to care for and to deliver us from the issues that we're going on in our life? Probably. Well, not probably. Of course he does, right? And if we're not anxious, but we go to God, who we've been joined to, his son, the promise of not being anxious we're promised to give been giving uh, given a peace that surpasses understanding because we know that he'll provide for us he'll give us peace he'll take care of listen to the word needs he'll take care of our needs not our wants our needs philippians 4:19 my god will supply all your needs according to his riches in christ jesus the same god who's going to guard us and protect us says He's never going to leave us or forsake us. Matthew 28, verse 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's how wonderful our bridegroom Christ is. He provides for us. He cares for us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. I pause to take another rabbit trail that I like to run down. Just stop and listen to yourself, my dear friends. The next time you pray, 
and you say out of your mouth, Lord, be with us as we fill in the blank. Stop and think about that. He's already promised to never leave us or forsake us, so we probably don't have to ask him to be with us since he's promised to never leave us or forsake us. And since he happens to be the omnipresent God, you probably don't have to worry about that anyway. Shallowness in understanding who we are in Christ. Shallowness in understanding God. Shallowness in understanding our union with the person of Jesus Christ. The one who's promised to protect us and keep us, to lead us, to never leave us. Lo, I'm with you always. I mean, these are just some of the the privileges of being united to the person of Jesus Christ. Loved eternally by the Father. Now look, I'm not Pollyannish. I, I know we live in a fallen world, and I know that there are problems and issues. But we're called to take those problems and issues to God. Not to try to figure it out on our own. Not to solve them on our own. Because most of the problems and issues in our life we can't solve on our own. That's what it means to be dependent upon the Father. Dependent upon the person of Jesus Christ. The one who has the power, the one who has the ability, the one who has the knowledge to take care of all those problems. We live in a fallen world and you might lose your job. We live in a fallen world and you might lose your health. We live in a fallen world and all kinds of bad things might happen to you, but it's okay because we have one who's promised to never leave us or forsake us. The one who's promised to give us a peace that passes understanding, comprehension, right? The one who's going to promise to guard our hearts and minds if we take everything to him by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for all the trouble in my life? Why wouldn't you give thanksgiving for the trouble in your life? Isn't God sovereign? Is he only the God over the good things and not the bad things? How well do we know this God of the Bible we say we serve? How well do we understand what it means to be a follower, a son adopted into his family? My God will supply all your needs according to his riches. It might not look like the way we would hope it to look or the way we thought it would look. But if our God who's good loves us, then it's probably good It's probably loving. Again, all the privileges that I've already given to us and the fact that we're eternally loved by the Father. Nothing can ever separate us from that love. gives you a different perspective in life. What can separate us from that love? Again, Paul says in Romans 8, absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Therefore, my brethren, you also are made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another. To him who is raised from the dead here was why? In order that we might bear fruit for God. What's the purpose of our union? That we might bear fruit for God. So what does that mean that we might bear fruit for God? Well, first of all, first of all, it means this. That, that the union that we have with Christ is not all, about, not all about us. The union that we have with Christ is not all about us. It's not just all about what we get out of the deal. Verse 4 again says the purpose of us being united with Christ is that we might bear fruit for God. Now, we get a lot of benefits. I'm not begging that point. But God in his union, uniting us with his son, has a purpose for himself in this union that we might bear fruit for him. Now, again, this is in part part of the problem with superficial Christianity, superficial evangelicalism. It always puts Christ forward as the one who can give to us, the giver of the gifts, the one who exists only for man's benefit, to please man, serve man. And not only is that superficial, but that really is a blasphemous view of God. That he just exists for our pleasure. And it's very easy for us to go astray in this issue because we all tend to be so uh, self-centered. 
So, yeah, the union we have with Christ is for our forgiveness. Yeah, it's for our salvation, our security. It's for our privileges. Yeah, it's for the things that he, we possess uh, through God in Christ. Yeah, but it exists that we might bear fruit for God himself. That's why we're married to Christ. So what does that mean? What does it mean to bear fruit for God? Well, if you carry the marriage analogy further, the husband and wife marriage analogy, fruit in the husband and marriage analogy would be offspring, wouldn't it? Some kind of offspring. And I can't help but think there's a certain aspect of that truth here that would be true for us in our spiritual relationship with God and our union with God through Christ that we would bring forth fruit for God, that we would have some kind of spiritual offspring, right? That we would bear fruit for God, that we would probably take hold of and seize the ministry that we have been given, the gospel ministry, as ambassadors of the gospel, boldly proclaiming the truth of God's offer of free grace and forgiveness of sin uh, for all who would repent. Paul says that's the ministry that God has given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things, old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our ministry. That's our mission in the world. That's why we're not taken up to heaven at the moment of our salvation, because we've a job that we've been left to do to represent God and represent Christ, begging people to be reconciled unto God, because God is a God of tremendous love and mercy and desires for men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, Jesus said, uh, I have all authority. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And again, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's who we are in Christ, called to the ministry of reconciliation, called to go and make disciples of all the nations to produce spiritual offspring. That certainly has to be part of that, what it means to bear fruit for God. I think another aspect of bearing fruit for God is our holiness. Right? Fruit for God with our union with Christ has to be our holiness. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, What is holiness? He says, Holiness is to live to God's glory and to God's praise. Holiness is not a feeling. Holiness is a life lived to the glory of God and to His eternal praise. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, and temperance. And we are married to Him in order that we may bring forth such fruit. That's a great observation, right? It's our holiness. And again, apart from our union with Christ, we can never produce that kind of fruit. That's why a man who is not a believer, that's why a man who is married to the law, who still stands under condemnation, is never able to bear fruit for God. He's never able to live his life as a holy life to God's glory. He can never live his life to please God. Because apart from Christ, the man's still under condemnation. Apart from Christ, he's still an idolater. He's still serving himself. He's refusing to bow his knee and serve Christ. He's refusing to live a holy life for God and to God's glory. And apart from being married to Christ, all men still stand under condemnation. The fruit of holiness only comes not by the law, it only comes by being united to the Holy One. What's true of Him is true of us. The Righteous One, given the righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose for our union, right? in salvation, that we produce fruit for God, and part of that fruit is our holiness. The great theologian Charles Hodge wrote this, 
For as far as we are concerned, redemption is in order to produce holiness. We are delivered from the law in order that we might be united to Christ. We were united to Christ in order that we might bring forth fruit to God. The only evidence of union with Christ is to bring forth fruit unto God. As deliverance from the penalty of the law is in order to produce holiness. It is vain to accept that to expect that deliverance except with a view to the end for which it was granted. Right? He's saying, look, if there's not a reality of holiness in your life, there's a reality that you're probably not who you claim to be. Because each and every day, I said it earlier, the Holy Spirit is conforming us more and more to the image of His Son, the Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Right? So from the moment of our salvation... From the moment when the two become one flesh, as it were, and that marriage between us and Christ takes place, there has to be fruit. Fruit might be small at times, but there has to be fruit. Because we are partakers of the divine nature, and we've been united with Christ in order that we might bear fruit for God. So that's the product of justification by faith alone. Chapter 6, holiness. Chapter 7, fruitfulness. A life that glorifies God in Christ. And it goes on. There's more. Look very quickly at verse 5. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for for death. But now, having been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we might serve in newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Uh, Again, these, these verses are just loaded. Just loaded with truth. You got the familiar we were, but now. We used to be this, apart from Christ, but now. There's a change that takes place. God is out to work. God is working in our life because of this intimate union uh, between us and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've died to the law. We're married to Christ. Uh, we died to the law. We have the, the old husband is gone. We have a new one. Married to the wonderful person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we have to, we must live differently because of that reality, because of that union with Christ. And, and Paul in this section is going to show us that the law can never do that. The law can never produce this newness of life. It's interesting, if you look at these uh, verses, there are four words, four characteristics that come out. And the four words are flesh, sin, law, and death. Flesh, sin, law, and death. Apart from Christ, we were in the flesh. Apart from Christ, we lived our lives in sinful passions. Apart from Christ, these sinful passions were continually being aroused by the law. And these sinful passions worked unceasingly to bear fruit for death. A great transformation while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions. But then, verse 6, but now. Again, two of the greatest words. Somebody once said that that's the gospel in two words, but now. This is the work of God. This is what God's going to do for us. That we could not do for ourselves, that which the law couldn't do for us, because the law could only condemn us. In Christ, we're free. In Christ, we have a complete new relationship a complete new start, a complete new relationship to the law, and a new standing before God the Father. Amen? And that was all in verse 4. And Lord willing, we'll get to verses 5 and 6 next time. All right? Our Father and our God, we're thankful for the wonderful truth that we find here in your wonderful, wonderful word. We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the truth that you have presented to us. We're thankful for the salvation and the new life we have in you, our God, and in Christ, our Savior that now we are married to your son, part of your eternal family, uh, from which you have promised to never leave us or forsake us and always to care for us. And may we just marvel 
at your grace and at your kindness. And may we be those who bear that fruit for you, our God. Thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for drawing us upward out of uh, superficial, superficiality, but up to the heights of heaven, that we might understand the glory of your word and the glory of our Savior. Thank you for a great day of worship, and now for a time of fellowship here in the evening. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.